Greetings all. Welcome back to the Captimizer podcast. Today we've got retired police officer, author, private security company owner, uh, writer, and just all around good guy, right? Sure. We'll Chris Hoyer. Chris Hoyer. Thanks for being here. Absolutely. That's my honor. Thank you, Patrick. Appreciate it. All right, Chris. Um, why don't you just take a minute and give the audience a little bit of background about who you are, what agency you worked with, and and then we're going to jump right in because I uh, I love the opening line or it's one of the opening lines of your book. And every cop in America knows cops just like you. <laughs> and maybe that, a little hint to what's coming. I hope that's a good thing. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, it's a good thing and a bad thing, right? Oh, yeah. It, it yeah, depends on it depends on the day. Right. So, um, yeah, so I'm Chris Hoyer. Um, I was born in New England back in the late 60s. In fact, I'm not sure I wasn't born on the Woodstock lawn, but, you know, whatever. That's another conversation. So, <laughs> um, did all my time with uh, Phoenix PD from uh, 97 when I got hired on, when I called it quits in uh, 2018. Did my 20 years and 64 days, as a matter of fact. So, um, my, uh, my career was interesting. We'll just say that it had a, uh, a whole lot of really good stuff until my 18th year and then everything fell apart. Um, and when I retired, I wasn't at all what I ever thought it was going to look like when I, when I physically retired, the reason why, and if we get a chance to talk about that, I will. So, but it was good. I had a, had a great time. So. Yeah. Well, no time like the present. So, um, 20 years and uh, about 30 days into it, give or take. Um, so we're talking about June of 2018, right? Uh, respond to a call, comes out as an armed robbery slash kidnapping, and I'm a mile away, and I won't give away what, why that I was a mile away, because I was always that close to whatever it was. And uh, get to the call, and it's it's a husband, and he's screaming and yelling. Uh, my wife's being held at gunpoint inside his car you know, with another lady, and... We form a team. We go down this really long alley. It's about a hundred yards long, and I had uh, I had had to give up my rifle at that point. So all I had was my forty-five, and my rifle is my go-to for the second half of my career. And so we uh, come around the corner, and sure enough, we see this guy standing facing a car with a with a big freaking loaded handgun, basically pointing inside the window of this car. Um, at this point, we're all just pretty much hand signals until we get around the corner, come around, I see the guy, and I, I come up, and I'm like, you know, hey, Phoenix PD, drop the gun. And he basically takes about seven or eight seconds, and he looks in my direction and still holding the gun at, at, at these two ladies that are screaming inside his car. And, and I'm holding the gun on him, and he looks at me, and then he looks back at them, and then within about, like, again, about seven or eight seconds span, he finally lowers the gun. And for guys that understand an absolute eternity, and I'm going, oh, my God, dude, please just, you know, whatever you're going to do, if you're going to point the gun at somebody, point it at me so I'm justified and, and pulling the trigger, God forbid. Had a spot picked out on the side of his head. I was going to drop him if I needed to. And luckily he didn't. He laid, laid the gun out on the ground. We got him proned out. I went up there, and I'm helping secure him as, you know, as a lethal coverage. Two or three of the other guys are, are going hands-on. And – when I went to holster my weapon, I was completely slacked out on the trigger. And as a longtime firearms tactical rifle instructor, 
I knew at that very second that I was no longer fit for duty. If I can't remember to take my friggin' finger off the trigger while I'm pointing it back in my holster, I was I was no good to the law enforcement community and the literally very next day drop paper and call it quits. So well, you know that that doesn't happen overnight, right? So there's there's kind of a process and we'll get we'll work our way um to that point as we have this conversation today. But you know, I would I would just from that quick observation and from that quick story, there is there's already several things that you know, that a that a police officer listening is going to pick up on that are also pretty impressive, right? The fact that um we used or your team, you use hand signals, you knew what you were you were coordinating your efforts, probably people you've worked with a lot. Um you found a position of cover, you gave yourself time, you gave yourself space, you gave yourself, you know, that, you know, create the reactionary gap. And then on top of that, you issued the commands and even had, you know, outcomes played out in your head. Um, you know, you know, a sight picture where you're going to shoot um, for that is not this, the sign of an officer that's in condition black and, we, uh, you know, for the for the listeners that are not familiar with that condition, black is what we call just the it's the amygdala overload where the brain, the stress is just too much. And and we can't think our way through a stressful situation. That's about as simple as I can put it. Well put. I love that. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great description. Sometimes when when we're under stress, we're not thinking about anything. That's that's the biggest concern is that an officer is not thinking about anything that they've gone in that condition black. Uh, you also have very rare cases at the complete other end of the spectrum where people are not scared at all, like they're completely relaxed. The fear factor is is gone entirely, which also is not healthy. So you know, but there's always that space in between where where we want to where we want to try to oscillate in in that stress is not necessarily a bad thing. Stress is what keeps us alive. Um, but too much stress, an overload of stress, um, and the ultimate uh, emotional dysregulation that comes from unmitigated, unmanaged stress, that's when we get in trouble. Very true. Yeah. And I, I tried to stay in the middle of that as much as I could of consciously thinking about it. But sometimes, you know, your brain takes over and makes you do that. You're like, oh, okay. All right. You know, and yeah. So, so for you, I mean, what was, um, was there any, was, was there any thought or any idea, uh, you know, maybe of, maybe I need to go speak with a counselor. Maybe I need to go to EAP. Maybe there's, maybe there's a way for me to work through this, or maybe it's just, look, I, you know, I, I've created a, this line in the sand in my own head, uh, real or imagined that's, you know, that was my, you know, the, you know, something like this was a decision point for me. And I decided, Hey, this is it. I've had enough. I had uh, I had been shrunk pretty well at that point. Um, been through some some pretty horrific things in the last couple of years of my career, and did actually finally seek out you know, help on my own, which was fantastic. And I got to be honest with you, when I when I physically walked out the door for the last time, it was like the biggest weight ever being lifted off my chest, and that was the civilian side of the healing that I so desperately needed. You know, um, on the internal side, the, the professional side of the healing started two years earlier. And I didn't realize that, you know, 
they were they were pretty much even in in my existence how much I needed both you know for, for the professional side to, to maintain my my career for the last two years and then after I left to maintain my own mental stability to be back in the regular world if you will you know it was it was a tough struggle so well how do you feel like you're doing today you know I'm I'm absolutely losing I'm living the dream I, I can't stand it I feel guilty that things are going so well <laughs> but on a, on a little side note I gotta I gotta throw this out there so um if anybody's familiar with the guys from 220 um I reached out to them to help with being a a sponsor for for my company that I do a lot of public speaking for uh really more just a um a resource if anything else uh long 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 story short I, I reached out to them and I said hey would you like to do a little session with us I'm like no I'm good I just love what you guys do blah 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 we're gonna run you through a session all right, fine. And as it turned out, they they picked some stuff out of my childhood from 37 years ago that I'd still been hanging on to. And I thought that I was completely 100% squared away. And then they they pulled this stuff out of nowhere. And I'm like, holy cow. And so now, combined with being out of the game, being retired, living at the beach, got my girlfriend who's loved my life, all these kinds of things. And now, with that childhood trauma that I've been apparently hanging on to gone, I, I can't imagine life being any better. So you know, it's just awesome. Just one little thread, right? Sometimes that's all it takes. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like, I was when I was on the force. I'm like, Oh, I'm, bored. I'm fine. No. Okay. Well, well for, let's find out. Yeah. So if, if for people that are not familiar with 220, um, maybe let's give them a quick little, a quick little shout out. Oh God. Just love those guys. Dan Jarvis and his team. Um, just saw Dr. Pam out in Dallas. I was out there with my girlfriend doing a conference out there. Um, the stuff that they do, it's not it's not based on medication or anything else. They they kind of re retrain your brain just a little bit, and it's not some weird reverse Jedi mind trick stuff. You know, they basically just they retrain your brain to think about things from a different angle. And of course, they got it down to a science, and it was probably some of the most effective healing i've ever had even considering all the other stuff i went through on the force so i was like what what the hell just happened here i mean it was it was awesome it was awesome i just loved it so now i, I just i plugged in whenever i could ever get an opportunity so so they are they uh military or law enforcement or both military and law enforcement which um they are not public safety okay yeah all public safety stuff and they are 100 free for either one of those communities um dispatchers families everything so they're they're donation based. And when they've got a, a case that needs to be handled in a different manner, if you will, then they'll send them out to professionals. And then it, it starts getting into a cost, which is completely separate from what they do. And of course, I'm not I'm not a representative. I'm not part of their their community as far as being a member. Um, but I do endorse what they do because it's such an awesome thing that they do. I just love it. So. Well, I, I appreciate you giving the uh, the brief shout out. And the reason the reason I asked you to do that is because now we're, we're going to go back a little bit, and now we're going to kind of get to the uh, the crux of of the conversation. And the I think it's important, especially for people I think that listen to generally our audience and for this podcast, we're thinking about police officer optimization, right? How do we you know how do we bring our best self to the job every day? How do we hire healthy, retire healthy? Um, and you know we're it is a it is a comprehensive task. There's you can't you know you can't keep things in silos and expect to to have a 
you know, a machine, the human machine that's going to, that's going to run on all cylinders. Um, you, you know, you can run on a couple, you know, let's just say, let's just, if we're an eight cylinder engine, uh, you can run on six for a while, you can run on four for a while, and you can even run on two for a while, but um, eventually that's going to catch up with you. And, oh, yeah. and so companies, you know, you know, really sometimes I think we've got to look uh, where we, we got to look inward before before we look outward all right now i gotta i'm, I'm gonna read something again um chris is the author of a book when that day comes training for the fight and who we wrote with uh natalie june riley let's go right to the prologue i just want to read this for just a minute the day it happened 20 years and 64 days that was long enough for me. Among my peers, I was labeled the resident magnet in three separate precincts. I was not reaching for that goal, but over time, it became a badge of honor of sorts, one that I took pride in. I would hold many badges throughout my career in law enforcement. As a street cop, I was honored to do so. This is me, Christopher Matthew Hoyer, otherwise known as magnet. This term is used in enforcement and dispatch settings. It generally means that things are rolling along smoothly until a certain cop arrives on scene. Bad shit happens when this is on duty. Most magnets are not only aware of their precondition to attract problems for their department or shift, but are quite proud of it. I got a lot of attention on the street. Some folks were entertained, if not amused, by my incredible luck. Others were waiting for me to screw up. I may have pandered to both audiences, but overall, I made a habit out of doing the job right. At the end of the day, I was great at catching, but not so much at cleaning. Processing and report writing was not really my specialty. Dispatch would call me out by my first name over the radio, which was strictly out of policy. Christopher? I heard that a few times in my career. It was code for, you should probably mellow out. Sometimes just for fun, I would switch channels and announce my intentions when crossing precinct boundaries. Often dispatch would scold, do not start anything over here, mister. Yes, ma'am. I've only had one dispatcher quit because of my antics. It wasn't really my fault-ish. It was typical patrol stuff and misinterpreting illegals being dropped off for a drug deal, in which case led to three separate foot pursuits, two of which ended in physical fights. Two cars fled the scene, so I requested a helicopter and a canine unit. I guess it was all too much for the dispatcher to handle. As soon as we were secure, I was told she dropped her headset and quit right on the spot. Sorry, that was not my intention. Radio codes differ from place to place. Most agencies around the country use 10 codes with some variation, but beyond that, I think they are more or less agency-specific, albeit somewhat similar between cities for cross-patching purposes. One of my favorite codes was the suspicious person. After a short time on the street, having developed strong on-view skills in respect to spotting and chasing bad guys, I found that for me, they were all suspicious. The suspicious person calls were more like a game of Mad Libs. They were all pretty much sounded the same for the varying verbs and, and adverbs attached to them. On average, the suspicious person call occurred at least once a shift. Because of my suspicious nature, 
a good buddy squad mate of mine coined a word just for me. I remember it clearly. We were cruising the streets one day when I identified my target. I turned to my squad car mate and said, hey man, you see that guy? I'll never forget his response. Dude, that can't all be crispicious. Crispicious. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to leave it right there. Crispicious. I love it. Yeah, I had, I had a few of those. I had the uh, Crisol, the Crisute. Um, I had a few more. I can't remember what they were. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't that bad. I the Chris Mudgeon? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that was the dispatcher's word for you, right? Uh, I'm sure they had a few words for me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, sometime on air, sometimes not. Well, <laughs> see, I, I every cop out there knew everybody knows the magnets and every agency has at least one, um, generally more than one. So you're and this is where we'll go back a little bit. You in you started in 1997 and in 1999 you were involved in your first officer involved shooting. Correct. So and then your second a year later. Yep. Yep. So walk us through that. What what was your first shooting like? The first one, um, you know, it was kind of strange because it was it was actually a dog. It was 150 pound Roddy and. I basically got out there and a couple of guys were like, Hey, this dog's been holding us, you know, he won't let us get to us, get to our car. He can't let us work and whatever else. So they crossed the road. The dog followed him over there, believe it or not. And was literally just freaking hounding him for like 45 minutes. So I get out there and I'm, you know, brand new bear. I I'm off probation. I think at that point, luckily. So, um, get out there, put on my Cape, you know, I'm like, yeah, I can handle dogs. I'm really good with animals. And, I called, you know, for rabies. Rabies isn't coming. You're like, no, nope, we're not coming out there. All right, cool, fine, whatever. I can handle this. Get out there. And I had a plan, so I had my pepper spray in my hand. And I didn't realize that there were actually two. So I went to the one I thought it was, who looked pretty docile, start, you know, making contact with that one. Turned out it was a female that was in heat. And her partner, so to speak, comes out of nowhere and literally latches onto my gun hand. I'm like, oh, so I still got the scar to this day, believe it or not, which is kind of funny. So he basically sinks his teeth into my hand. And of course, I ripped my hand out of his mouth and he charges at me and I, I moved it to this last second. He runs headlong into my car as I'm pepper spraying him. And I basically start dancing around the back of my car and he kind of comes to me literally like, I mean, I can he runs into the wheel of my car, falls over, gets back up. And now he's tracking on me and as I'm, I'm backing up, I draw out, and from 12 feet away, he's running full speed. He's getting ready. He's going down on, on all fours to lunge, and I just cranked off one round, put a round in his head, just miraculous shot. It was none of this, you know, front sight picture and smooth trigger pressing off. No, it was like, oh, shit, bro. Kind of a panic shot. Um, so put him down, and, of course, me being – new and stupid i put out a, a freaking 998 over the radio in which i still to this day get grief for <laughs> like, dude, you know and i didn't know any better I, I mean for all i know i mean i was i was kind of in panic mode because i'll tell you what man there's there's a very strange feeling about standing in the middle of a, of a busy street and and shooting your gun it's it's a weird feeling so i i kind of went into panic mode i'm like i'll oh, put it out really quick um so fast forward um a year almost later, yeah, 11 months later, this is 
August 99 was the first one. July of 2000. Well, before, before you go on to the second one, I, I think it's important to talk a little bit about this for, for those that may be listening that, that are not in law enforcement. You made that sound pretty casual, but that's, that's, that's nowhere near casual. And there's probably not a lot of officers out there that haven't had the, uh, haven't had to go home mid shift to clean their drawers out like once from, from an animal, uh, attack or a dog. I mean, dogs are amazing, amazing animals and creatures and, and police officers don't like to shoot dogs, but sometimes it is a necessity. Um, yeah, I can, I just immediately, when you were telling that story and my, and I'm going through the reel in my head. And I mean, we, we very sadly in our city, we had a, a, a small child an infant basically that was, that was mauled by a dog uh, and killed an officer had to shoot and kill the dog. Um, we had a woman uh, that was pinned by her own dog in her backyard and was just getting, was getting uh, mauled and mutilated by the dog. Um, and they were able, they were able to, the dog, I think eventually got euthanized, but the officers there were able to use a, a taser um, and, and stop the, stop the attack. But we, we've had multiple, multiple cases over the years. Uh, and I, that's every police department in America. And it's, it's kind of sad because Generally, you know, dogs uh, are a reflection of the care and the treatment and the way that they've been raised. And, you know, some some people just don't don't raise dogs well and, and they, they become a significant threat to to, uh, to neighborhoods and, and particularly to children. But you've you've got the scar. To, you've got the scar to, to, to prove it in your hands. Uh, yeah, you know, that can be a career ending, if not a life ending, you know, attack from from a dog, especially from a big Rottweiler. Well, you know, I, I talk about it in a book where, you know, I realized very quickly that this was a situation that, you know, I had to control. And if it was a rabies person, you know, they're going to probably show up with a snare. And are they going to be able to handle this 150 pound dog without a weapon, you know, without a gun or something like that? Um, and then I, I go to the worst case scenario. What if it's the mom jogging with her baby carriage? You know, oh, and he, gosh, yeah. You know, and I started thinking about all these worst cases that could have could have been the outcome had I not been there. So I started realizing that, yeah, I mean, I, I do say it was just a dog, but it was a big deal. It really was, you know, and, um, it, and it, very it, common. And this was, you know, we're talking 19, you know, late 90s. And and there are a lot more tools. Tasers weren't even a thing back then. Right. So a taser wasn't an option. And a taser is a risky proposition with a charging animal. Uh, it's not it's not like it even with a firearm. Right. It's not like you just point shoot and, and the dog goes down. Um the you know even even in our SWAT you know my early SWAT days um, you know we didn't have the net guns we didn't have tasers so you had to have alternative plans for how you were gonna you know secure a dog on a you know on a warrant raid or something like that so it doesn't injure any officers or or anyone else um, yeah we could we could do a show just on that alone we'll have to get an wow. animal control officer on here someday yeah that'd be Real great stories yeah. of the animal animal control officers. <laughs> And I, I'm sure you have too, but I've seen some pretty horrific stuff out there, man. And it's like, holy cow. I mean, I just, I was happen to be lucky enough to be the one to, to take care of it, you know, came with a little bit of a price, but you know, uh, the well, guy, the dog did try to sue us later. And my boss was like, well, see, I assault on a police officer and uh, all these other kind of things. So yeah. Um, you want to go that route? And he's like, yeah, maybe not so much. So it's yeah. like, come on, dude, whatever. So, so, all right. So we'll, now we'll, a year later, 
you, you, you have another shooting. Correct. Yes. This one was weird because I had my, uh, my very first civilian ride along who ended up being a friend of mine, um, comes rides with me and we're like, yeah, okay, cool. You know, it's just a normal day, you know, and they, uh, we're leaving circle K and we got our, our, our car full of goodies to go snack. Cause we don't want to sit down and eat anywhere. Cause God, we might, we might miss something. Right. You know, so, right. <laughs> uh, so get it in the I, car. Let's go. Yeah. Let's go. I mean, we had it all loaded up with whatever junk food we had, you know, and that was, that was our, our day. So, um, this is about 1145 ish in the morning on a Saturday. I think it was, if I remember right. And, um, Hot call comes out. Um, basically, it's an accident. And long story short on that, basically, this guy had stolen a car, had run from officers in another area of the city, and had made his way into our area, which I didn't, I wasn't aware of. And uh, he basically plants his car literally under the semi-trailer of a tractor trailer. I'm like, holy cow. I still don't know how to this, to this day how the guy got out of that car, but he did. So, you know, being the resident magnet that I was, I'm, I'm literally like a half mile away. A call comes out. And I really hated doing accidents. I'm like, oh, I don't want any, want any part of this. But then the second half of the call comes out. They're like, oh, subject was last seen running with a gun. Now, that's the kind of stuff I can get into. I'm like, all right, cool. We can go for that. So uh, I was going anyways. Bust down to the scene. I'm down there in like 30 seconds. And now a crowd is formed. And they're all pointing like, he ran east. He ran east. He's got a gun. I'm like, all right, cool. So I put it out on the radio. Start heading that direction. I'm on a little bit of a track, if you will. And... I pull up to what I think is probably the most likely area he's going to be in. So we get out of the car and this guy comes running out of his store. He's like, he ran through my store. He ran through my store. I'm like, Oh, cool. All right. We're on the right, right location here. So I can see from the front door straight to the back door. There's a guy standing out in the back that looks just like this, the subject of this investigation now. So I've got my plan in place. I'm going to run out. I'm just going to tackle this guy. Get me done with it. And I get out the door and all of a sudden I hear this screaming going further to my right as it turned out. And she screamed, he's in my car. He's in my car. I'm like, look, well, it turned out this other guy wasn't the one. He's another witness that was that was looking around. So I go out and I see what ended up being an older style Cadillac and this freaking chud sitting in the front seat of his car. And I'm like, oh, well, that must be him. Right. So now it's starting to look like options. What do I do here? Um, being young and new. Uh, the last location that I put out was, okay, he was last seen running eastbound. We're going to head that direction. And that's the last thing I got on the radio and said. So radio didn't know where I was, which is kind of a problem. Very, very, very fortunately, um, air support was was coming overhead right around the same time when I found the guy inside the car, which I have no recollection of that whatsoever. Because I'm so focused on this guy. Not quite in the black, but I'm I'm definitely in that red zone. And it's a, it's a fight, you know, so. Um, it's a, it's an internal fight mentally at this point. I'm not physically fighting with the guy. And so my options are, well, do I pull the guy out of the car and know when he's got a gun or do I try to block his car in, which I can't do because I parked on the opposite side of the building. By the time I get to my car, get back around to where he's at, he's going to be gone, of course. So I, I'm in between two cars. I walk up full uniform. It's broad daylight. It's Phoenix. It's freaking July. It's hotter than hell outside. And uh, I walk up there and I, of course I got my gun out and I'm giving the guy commands and he's got what ended up being about an eight inch straight slotted throwing knife in his left hand. And I can't see where the gun is because it's somewhere laying on the front seat of the car. Okay, cool. 
So he starts cracking the column in his car. He's already working on it because he knows that the Lola, the Lola style GM cars, if you get the, the column at a certain spot, you can manipulate the ignition with your fingers. And he knows he's a professional car thief. That's what he does. So he's working on it. And I go up there and I'm giving him commands. And that's clearly not going to work because I'm standing over him. And he's like, well, basically, F you, I'm not doing shit. Yeah. No, no. Like, what do I do now? Right. Um, so I retreated back to the back of the car. I come back up for a second go around, if you will. And then I start realizing, well, and I, I want to try to say this was forward thinking, but it really wasn't. I wanted to try to create a distraction to force him out of the car. But what do I have to do that? Well, I can't shoot him yet because he's really not a threat to me because we got a barrier between us. So I start kicking the window of the car. I thought, well, maybe this will work. I'll, I'll show him that I'm really, I'm really serious this time, right? You know, so um, kicked it once with my left foot, didn't work. I go retreat back for cover, go back up a second time, kick it again a second time, doesn't work. I go back for cover again, and I go back the third time. And the reason I didn't use my primary foot because I didn't want to lose sight and I didn't want to shoot my toe off at the same time, God forbid, which I was smart enough not to do at that point, luckily. So, um, but that third go around, I could hear the car starting to crank and I'm like, Oh man, I gotta, I gotta get something done now. So I leaned back on the car behind me and got more force, used my primary foot, my right foot, and was able to kick and shatter the window of the car driver's side door window. What that does basically, he kind of leans to his right side. He's kind of trying to shield his face from the glass and he reaches down on the seat and gets the gun up to about a 45 degree angle in my direction. And I opened fire on him and cranked off two rounds. The second round went through the door of the car right below his arm. But the first round caught him in the arm bone right below the shoulder. And as it turned out, now I know later went straight through his arm, straight to his heart. And he was pretty much done at that time. So I'm like, holy shit. And then the panic set in. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, and then, yeah. And then you actually have time to kind of sit back and think about, well, what did I, what just happened here? And that's, um, you know, it's a, it's, this is maybe a good time to talk about a few things. Um, one, we hear a lot today about de-escalation about, and, and I think that there's, unfortunately, I think there's a large part of the public that has been, you know, kind of misled about what this de-escalation is and what it means. And, you know, every, every police officer is trained in de-escalation from day one because you try to avoid physical confrontations, particularly those involving, you know, force and, you know, the, or the escalation of the use of deadly force. Um, but sometimes it's unavoidable. And when people just always assume maybe it's because of popular media, movies, stuff like that. Like you point the gun at somebody and you tell them, Hey, stop what you're doing. Get out of the car. Oh, you got me, sir. Yes. Okay. Let me just comply now. And that's just oh, not the case. Uh, and especially for, you know, hardened criminals that have been around the block a few times, they know, Hey, look, he's, he's not going to shoot me. Um, so this is my, this is my opportunity to get away and I'm, I'm going to get away and he, I'm not stopping and I'm not complying. And you know, we, we've, you know, for, for a suspect like that, without knowing all the case particulars, right. He's already been involved in, in a forcible felony. He's been involved in a serious crash, put the public at, at significant risk. And so the risk of him fleeing at that point, um, is, you know, it's, it's, I mean, it's easy. It's a logical next step. It's a conclusion that, that, that's going to present a significant risk to serious bodily harm, injury, or death to others. 
ends. So you have a decision in that moment, right? How do, how do I, what's the best way to stop them? And, you know, there are, there are some today that would say, well, in that case today, uh, it's better just to let them go and we'll catch them later. Um, well, you know, I, you know, those are always going to be a case by case decision and, you know, policy in the end, you're going to be dictated by what your policy is, what your state law is, um, and you know, what the, what the use of force rules are, but it, it's not as simple as it sounds, is it? Not at all. And here's the problem, you know, and I, I use this model all the time when I speak as I hold a pencil or a pen up to my, to my nose and I drop it to the floor. And that's the time frame you have to make a, a decision on a critical incident. You know, so you got a second, second and a half, two seconds. And don't get me wrong. Of course, we're, we're trained and we we do de-escalate and we can figure out certain things. But fact of the matter is you're still a human. You still got that three quarters of a second to make that decision. You know, when it just comes to your brain and then you've got to react to that and then you've got to formulate a plan and all this kind of stuff. Now, training will certainly get you ahead of the curve. But you still only got a certain amount of time to make a decision on something that could either take your life or take somebody else's life. It's just a fact. Yeah. And you don't you don't control the variables there. You only control the variables within your control. But suspects always have a say. And that that's the part that people sometimes lose sight of is that this is it's action reaction. And um yeah, that, like that moment is very fast and it comes on you fast. And and so this is, it, you know, I think it's an interesting way to juxtapose this right now. You fast forward to the end of your career when you've and we'll go back and we'll talk about your next shooting uh, in a second. But now you realize, right, I've, I've been I've been down this road. I've been through these uh, several times in you can, you know, I I worked 27 years and one day as a police officer. My last 10 were, you know, I was a chief primarily in, a, in an administrative capacity. So, you know, the likelihood of me getting involved in any kind of uh, use of force or, or deadly force altercation for the last 10 years of my career, extremely, extremely low, uh, probably about the same as they are today, right? Um, going to the grocery store, or whatever, encountering something. Um, but that's not the way it was for, you know, the better half of the first, you know, two thirds of my career. Um, and it's, you know, I, well, I think if people would just take a moment to kind of think things through in, in as, in as rationally as you can and, and try to remove emotion as much as you can, for what the process in that decision making is, um, experience is just something. Sometimes you just have to learn as you go, and you can. And you mentioned it. You can train, 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 um, and we can talk about that in a second. But you still have to experience it, and and so by the end, of you, by the time you get to the end of your career, you recognize, hey, look, something's not right here. I've been through this several times before, and my mind and my reactions are a little bit different um, now. And so maybe it's time to take a step back and, and reassess. That's absolutely true. Yeah. And when I had, you know, two or three years on young and on fire, I mean, it was, you know, very, like I joked about earlier, it's like, you know, none of the smooth trigger press and all that. It was like, you know, kind of almost panic fire. I mean, it was directed fire. Don't get me wrong. Took care of the job both times. But that last one, um, you know, God forbid in 2018, when I, when I was 
slacking out on that trigger, all that other stuff I had gone through that we'll talk about um, was all f- kind of flowing through my brain, thinking to myself, if I got to go through this again, I may not recover from it. You know, I just, I mean, I'm, I'm so far, you know, gone from, you know, where I started to where I ended is a whole nother dynamic. You know, it's like, Oh, I just, I just don't know if I can do it. You know? So, so, you know, just a couple of things real quick to break down there again, when you're young, even, even the first few years, even as you start and, and Phoenix PD is obviously a large metropolitan police department with a very high level of activity. So you're getting a lot of calls like that. It's not like these are something that only happens once a month or, or once every couple months, these are probably pretty frequent types of, of calls. And they, now thankfully they don't all end in gunfire. Um, uh, and matter of fact, most of them don't, right? Very, very few cases in the grand scheme of things ever, ever end that way. But it is also unusual for, you know, for officers to be involved in uh, multiple shootings. And it does seem to be <laughs> when it is, that's generally how you, you know, get termed magnet uh, or other colorful expressions for. It certainly didn't help. I'll tell you that. So. <laughs> well, and again, and I, I think the reason is pretty obvious. It's, you know, certain officers are always first there and, you know, certain officers are always the last there. Um, They always, you know, even, even when they're closest, they find a way to be the last ones on scene. So, um, and, and I'm sure that's the same way in every profession. And and I think a lot of that is, you know, kind of a, a a psychological boundary, a protection, like, you know, maybe a little bit of fear, a little bit of, you know, a lack of confidence and being able to manage a crisis incident. But um, when it comes to training and when it comes to experience, here is uh, another brilliant and poignant example of why investment in policing is so important and so critical defunding the police does not reduce the risk of officer-involved shootings. And I don't know if I can scream that any louder or get people to understand that. In fact, it actually increases the likelihood that you're going to have more officer-involved shootings because you're going to have less experienced officers with less training, less development, and under more pressure. And that's it's just a recipe for disaster. I agree 100%. And I mean, I, I say it this way, but since I'm retired, I can get away a little bit more. But that, that comes from a place of ignorance that people just don't know. They're uneducated. They don't understand the dynamic of, you know, critical incidents at all, you know, and or the training that is required to get officers where they need to be to survive any kind of, a, you know, confrontation, whatever it is, physical, mental, you know, I mean, even dealing with regular emotionally disturbed people, you still got to have a level of, of training to be able to manage those things. You know, and we're talking a lot of worst case scenario, the bigger stuff, but it doesn't disclude the little stuff that you got to deal with on a daily basis, the regular, you know, missing child or, you know, low key domestic violence. All those things are all factored in that people are, they're not taking all that on into account. So. Yeah. And, and you know, the, in, in, I want to talk a little bit here in a, in a bit about rifles because you you made a mention earlier like second half of your career your, your rifle was your go-to weapon um and you if you consider that some in the public think that that is a sign of 
over militarization of the police where police are carrying around automatic rifles um or some generally they're semi-automatics SWAT teams sometimes will will have fully automatic but that it's a very it's a rarity when anyone in law enforcement uses a, a quote machine gun um so the most important tool that any that any police officer can employ is the six inches between their ears like what's going on in the brain how can i process information and how can i make the best decisions based on the information that i have in combination with my personal and professional experience my training and the equipment that that is given to me to try to get the job done well you know let me i gotta just take that step further because that's exactly right and a lot of people think that officers go out there with the intent of trying to hurt people. That is, that could not be further from the truth. That is not what we're there for. You know, we just want to go out there and just make everybody safe, you know, and sometimes we get challenged and we we're not going to just be victimized and beat up and spit on. And we, sometimes we got to defend ourselves and yeah, that does come with the turf, but at the same time, I'm not going to let somebody take full advantage of me and run me into the ground and try to kill me. It doesn't work that way, you know? So, right. Yeah. You've got just as much right to go home every night. And and quite frankly, what people need to understand is if the police officers out there won't hold the line, aren't, aren't expected to hold the line. Um, then the assumption, the assumption that some make is that, well, people won't commit the crimes then. And it's just kind of like, when you really break down the logic, it makes zero sense. Um, and, and, and then quite frankly, there, you know, there's just a lot of absurdity to it. And, and, and in the end, it's really about 10% of the population that, that screams the loudest, maybe, maybe 15 these days, uh, generally, you know, 10% of the other on the opposite end of the spectrum is, you know, probably way too heavy handed and, and would like the police to do more than they do. But most people I think are in that 70 to 80% where, they they understand that the police have a difficult job. They're placed in difficult circumstances, and we need to to adequately prepare them to be able to successfully uh, accomplish the mission in our communities that we need them to. And that's and that's to maintain law and order and to keep the public safe. Amen. I agree. All right. So now you've been involved in uh, your first shooting involving a, a person, two shootings. And you're just a couple of years on the job. So mentally, what kind of, you know, what's, what's the space you're in at that point in your career? I was, it was kind of strange um, because I ended up making officer of the year right after that. And I was like, okay, I, I'm, I'm getting awarded for killing somebody, which is, you know, it, it kind of plays on your mind. I was a little bit older. So I was, I was pushing 30 by that point. So I had a little bit more life experience, but I can imagine for a young kid, I mean, I call them a kid, they're obviously adults, but Right. You know, you're in your early, early 20s and you and you get that kind of an accolade. It, it could probably play on your on your brain just a little bit. And it did with me. And when I came away from that, both of those experiences were I'm simply reacting to what they did. You touched on that earlier. And so I never had any guilt about having to take a life. It's like, look, you know, I've got, you know, a child at home I need to get home to. I got a wife at home I need to get home to. And as it turned out. I found out four days later, my wife was pregnant at the time. I'm like, holy cow, you know, can imagine, you know, had I not done what I did, you know, this guy, as it turns out, what I found out later was he was not only a bad guy and on my day, but he pulled a shotgun on my field training officer a year before. 
and had three felony warrants outstanding for his arrest that particular day. I was like, holy cow, this dude's a bad guy, you know? And if I don't take care of business, he's just going to continue on his, on his rampage. And some other guy is probably going to have to face this guy. If I don't do it now, it's going to be somebody else later on. So, um, so with all that, I was, I was feeling pretty confident in my abilities. I'm like, okay, I've, I've kind of, you know, I've, I've sort of earned my, my badge a little bit. I've kind of cut my teeth. Um, wasn't feeling at all arrogant, but definitely more confident in my ability to just simply do my job, you know, so. Well, yeah, that is, it is interesting. And, you know, sometimes it seems because you want to, you want to reward officers for good behavior, for demonstrating professionalism, but, you know, the flip side to that coin, right, is, is that, you know, on the other end of the bullet is another human being and, you know, that can, that can really mess with, uh, with a person and their psyche. And, and you don't come into this profession, you know, to, to kill people, you come in to help people, but sometimes that's just, sometimes that's the, that's the only choice and that's what's going to happen. And in your case, if you don't, if you don't pull the trigger, when you do, we're talking a quarter of a second, a half a second longer. And that's, that's you uh, that's laying there in the road while he, and then he finishes, uh, hot wiring that car and he's often, he's often running and then, uh, undoubtedly going to be involved in, in a similar incident right down the road, right. As everyone else closes in. So, um, sometimes in order to save a life, you have to take a life and that's, and you know, that's the bottom line. Well, you know, the fact is it's, it sounds kind of bad to say it this way, but, um, I knew what I was getting into when I got, when I joined the law enforcement community, this guy knew what he was doing when he decided to steal a car that day. And when he decided to confront the police, it's like, you know, I mean, and when he we, ran with a gun in his hand, when he had a knife in his hand and when he's, that. uh, you know, crashing, crashing cars, putting the public at risk he, with three warrants. Um, and this is not, this is not, and this is what people I, I hope maybe they get out of it. This is not a rarity. This is not the exception. <laughs> this is this is the everyday life of a street cop in America today. This is what we're dealing with. Um, these are the 2% of the calls that drive 80 to 90% of the serious issues uh, in your communities. And we need people out there uh, like you were doing and those that are out there today doing that job to make sure that we maintain law and order and keep people safe. I agree. You know, and I, I was just, I feel, you know, blessed that I was able to to handle it and, and take care of it, you know, in a in a timely manner on, on some on some level, I guess. But you know, had I failed, where would that have left me and or the public and my family, you know, and in my my law enforcement family, you know, right? Would be bad, you know. So let's let's move forward a little bit and to you were involved in an, another officer involved shooting which is um how, what was the what was the time span for, for that next one to occur so the my last one was 2000 this one was 2013 so we're talking you know 11 years later give or take and now <clears throat> um i do have a lot more investigative experience under my belt i made it to a specialty squad so i've got some undercover experience and uh clearly a lot more time on so um and I've, I've got more instructorships under my belt as well, which helps me um, learn how to teach other guys, which makes me that much better on the street. So fast forward, I got a new partner. Um, 
just got my rifle back in 2011. So I had about two years and, um, the, the rifle story, you know, I, I failed the rifle school the first time came back and then <laughs> literally, I'm not kidding you day one with the, with the long gun, um, we're pulling up to the gate, hot call comes up, subject with a rifle in apartment complex, you know, cranking off rounds. I'm like, Oh my God, <laughs> my partner at the time was like, dude, are you kidding me? So we get out there and, you know, ended up being nothing. Uh, we, we took the guy down, didn't have to shoot him or anything else. Um, so day one, I'm already getting experience with this with this long gun. So, but you're glad you had it, right? I actually wrote an email to the to the rifle squad, and I had no intention of it going any further, just to the sergeant. But he ended up using that email as as an endorsement for the rifle squad, so we could get more rifles on the street. He goes, "Hey, you know," and basically what I said was the confidence this thing gave me from 35 yards away. I knew there was no way I was going to miss because I was. After 70 hours of training, which is because I failed the first one, I had to go back for the second go around. Um, I, I had 100% confidence in my abilities of shooting that gun. It was unbelievable. So um, it was great. It was, it was, it was spot on. So, um, so fast forward 2013 now, I got another new partner um, and hot call comes out, stolen car. We're on the far west side of town. The car gets, it's a taxi, a truck gets stolen on the east side of town. He's coming down the I-10, which is the main artery that goes through the through the valley in Arizona. And uh, I told my partner, I told Scotty, I'm like, hey, we're going to find that guy. He's like, yeah, I'm sure we will. And sure enough, um, we get off the freeway, get right back on to go back westbound. And I swear to God, within two seconds, there he is. I'm like, oh, there he is. And he's he's got two or three undercover guys following him. They, they're on the radio like, yeah, we got the vehicle. We're heading westbound. So we're now the second marked unit with the with the conga line, if you will. So the marked units hold back, waiting for the aircraft to get overhead. We got to get out of town because we got um, we got air air support coming, but they they've got to wait till we clear one of the local airports before they can deploy, if you will. So we're following with the undercovers, and uh, the lead marked unit gets up, and they're like, "Okay, we got the air support. Let's go ahead and light them up." And sure enough officer lights him up and pursuits on and he holds on for just long enough time to initiate the the felony flight on the guy he shuts down backs off the ucs the undercovers they converge they get back in position and, and i'm you know maybe a quarter mile back you know mark car i'm sure if he looked in his mirror he could probably see us back there but we, we hold him back close enough to where we're not going to lose the guy but close enough to where if if he bails, we got we got a good chance of catching him on foot. So, um, so from about a quarter mile back, I'm watching. He's all the way in the far left hand lane, and five lanes over from where he's at is a tanker truck semi, and this guy from 70 miles an hour with basically what ended up being a flatbed F550 Ford flatbed truck goes at a 45 degree angle and catches the trailer of this of this semi tanker truck. And I'm like, oh, my God, the truck completely jackknifes. And the guy's intention, I assume, was probably to make the truck roll, explode, kind of take us right out of the fight. And he's on his way. Fortunately, the driver of the truck was heads up, mashes the gas, writes the trailer. Um, as we're driving by, we look up and we see the guy, the driver, and his eyes are about as big as pie plates, which, you know, no surprise. There. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Even I was kind of freaked out. I'm like, I've never seen anything like that before in my life. Um and so I tell Scotty, I'm like, dude, get your gun. We're going to, we're going to shoot this guy. And so Scotty grabs his rifle and um, 
fast forward toward the end of the whole thing, he has now taken out two other semis uh, for a total of three, uh, literally just trying to run them off the road, trying to get us out of the fight. He basically makes contact and does um, hit and runs with 17 other cars for a total of 20 vehicles, including what ended up being a, another officer from another agency. His motorcycle was parked in the street. He's doing traffic control. The guy basically just plows right into the bike and just destroys it. He goes into another area, um, and he's coming down this long, long stretch of road. And my thought process at the time was like, well, this guy's going to take out four or five of us when he when he rolls that truck and takes, you know, God only knows if he's armed or not. We don't even know. And so I decided to back off, and I was hanging back about a, about a half a mile or so. Obviously, I'm driving. And my, my thought process was when he crashes and he bails, I'm just going to run his over and just be done with it, <laughs> you know? which did actually happen in Arizona once before, which is just one of the greatest things I've ever seen, but um, didn't ever, didn't happen that way. So he goes down this long stretch of road um, for whatever reason, decides to make a U-turn. And now we've got marked units. We're, we're like lights and sirens chasing the guy. It's full-blown pursuit, 35 minutes into it, give or take, which is about average for a Phoenix thing like this because it happens all the time out there. You see it on the news. It's like L.A., um, the guy makes a U-turn in this huge giant truck and goes head on with a patrol car. Holy shit, a big Tahoe. The officer in the in the Tahoe puts a rifle round through his own windshield and through the through the bad guy's windshield and misses his head by centimeters. We went back later and looked, and the round was dead center right in the headrest. So the guy moved out of the way. Um, what ended up happening is the, the officer stopped, had enough time to put the car into park, and when he hit head on, it forced the car into reverse and launched him into a ditch going backwards. Holy shit. So the officers, when the guy made the U-turn, they had already stopped on the side of the road. The undercover guys got out, and they were cranking off rounds at this guy as he's driving off. So I see this from about a half a mile away. So I pull off on the side of the road, and, I mean, I got to tell you, there's nothing out there. I mean, it's it's a road and a ditch. That's it. We have nowhere to go. And so I stopped the car. Scotty gets out. He gets in the front of the Tahoe about 10 or 12 feet in front. And if you can picture, we're facing south, but looking east is the street sign. And Scotty made the, made the conscious decision when that guy doesn't stop, when he gets to that street sign, I'm going to light him up. Well, 20 or so feet back from there, where I was standing outside the Tahoe, the driver's side, there was another street sign. And I basically had said the same thing. That's my, my point when... It's point of no return. If he doesn't stop before he gets to that street sign, I'm going to light him up as well. Unplanned event, as it turned out, but sure enough, the guy's coming. He's barreling down the road. We estimated between about 55 and 60 miles an hour, 28 yards from our shooting platforms, if you will. He gets to that street sign, and Scott hits him with the rifle, cranks off seven rounds. Two seconds later, he gets to my sign, and I crank off nine rounds with my rifle, put him through the door, and... He ultimately stops about 250 yards up the road. And then we went up there, formed a big plan. We got a whole giant entourage of undercover cars, marked cars, canine, everything. Um, formulate a plan to get him out of the truck and ultimately extract him out and get him into custody. Um, he later died at the hospital, if I'm untold. Um, I never did find out for sure whatever happened with that, that part of the investigation, but in a nutshell, that was pretty much what happened on that one. So yeah, that's like uh, you ever seen the movie "To Live and Die in L.A." You know, yeah, that that's that's what I was envisioning in my head, like the chase going down the going down the freeway. Um, 
the danger that that someone can create in a car in a pursuit, uh, especially in a big truck like that, um, is clearly a danger to the public. Um, so you're now 11 years. This is like total of 13, 13, 14 years. And you know, you've been involved in several police action shootings. Feel like there was any type of pressure building on you, on you personally or anything? Or do you feel like, hey, I'm good. I got this under control. This is just, this is just life, life policing in Phoenix. Yep. That was, that was my attitude. And it wasn't based off of arrogance. It was just, you know, like we do, I'm just pounding my chest. I'm good. You know, and I, it was, it was kind of bad because I was ended up being a senior guy on that particular scene, um, including my sergeant, which was kind of funny. And um, when we go to do the, the citizen review board, um, the chief at the time that was, that was helping with that investigation, she's like, well, we're going to do this and this and this. And I stopped her and I said, Hey, chief, may I step in and can just fix something? And she goes, absolutely. Please do. I said, well, if we do it in chronological order, it's going to be easier for the folks to understand it. And she goes, yeah, let's do it that way. So now I've got, you know, my, my partner's going, dude, that's a chief and you're, you're correcting her. And I'm going, yeah, but you understand why I did it. And so now I've kind of got this little bit more confidence about, well, I'm, I'm, I mean, I don't get me wrong. I didn't say it this way, nor would I ever, but I'm like, I'm basically telling the chief what to do, you know, (laughs) but it was, it was for the side of, um, simplicity if you will more than anything so right well yeah i mean that's important to make sure that you get everybody's perspective um you know because in the end what you want is you want to get all the answers and you want to make sure everybody understands what happened well that's absolutely true and you know basically what she wanted to do is she wanted to start with us and then go to the the kid that was in the tahoe and then go to the officers i'm like you're going in reverse because you know, it should start with these guys over here jumping out and into this and into this and then how it ended over here. And let's just do it in chronological order that way, because civilians that that aren't involved in the law enforcement community directly, you know, they're not going to understand, well, why did you guys do this and then do this? And well, that's going to just get confusing. So, yeah, well, and it makes sense, right? Because sometimes, you know, when people are looking at outcomes, they're not looking at processes. Oh, they're trying to they're trying to judge outcomes without understanding the process. Um, and that's that's always a recipe for failure. Well, not only that, but then, you know, just like my first shooting, you know, when I figured out from that one, or my second one, I should say, was, um, you know, the level of force that started here and it went up to here and then to here. And that's what we did. We escalated. We tried everything we could do to not have to shoot this guy. But at, the, at some point in time, we, we just can't let this guy continue on with what he's doing. So, you know. So um, let's let's fast forward now to to the last shooting that you were involved in. Got it. Okay, so that was uh, May of 2016. Um, we had uh, it was just a regular day. We had a couple of dumbass kids that were doing some stupid stuff on the street, and I ended up um, taking some marijuana off this guy for whatever reason. Decided not to book him. Um, I'm at the station. It's 2:30 in the afternoon, and I'm booking the weed you know, whatever else. Then a uh, hot call comes out of a burglary and it's like 15 miles out of the, out of the way. It's not even in my area. And I heard the call come up and I'm not paying attention to it, you know? And then about five minutes later, our Lieutenant gets on the radio and he's, he's, of course he's monitoring the call. He goes, Hey, we need a, we need somebody to go down and scout the house. We need a, a plainclothes guy. And I'm, my first reaction was, Oh, it's two 30. I still got an hour and a half to get into something. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that's, that's smart. Right. <laughs> Dumb. 
course, I, I've been doing it that way for 18 years. So what, what's the difference, right? So <laughs> why change um, now? Yeah, why change now? I mean, hell, it's it's a, it's a Wednesday. I, I mean, I still got a couple more days of work. I might as well just go have some fun, you know. So, so I hop in a hot rod. I go shooting down there, and it takes me about eh, close to 20 minutes to get down there. So now we're um, that maybe it was a little bit before 2:30 when the call came out. So it's about um, close to 10 minutes to three, give or take now, and. I get out there, I'm scouting it out. I'm like, okay, this is what I got. I got a van in a driveway and nothing else. Okay. So drive down, I pass the house, I flip back around. And keep in mind, I've been doing the specialty squad job for now 14 years. It's called the Neighborhood Enforcement Team, where we do patrol and mark cars. We do, uh, like I was doing that particular day, we do patrol and unmarked cars, but it's still in a a kind of a uniform of some sort, just basically jeans and a t-shirt and an outer carrier vest. Or sometimes we just do undercover work straight up, you know, buying dope or, you know, buying guns or whatever we did. So I had a tremendous amount of experience, not only on the force, but with the neighborhood enforcement team as well. So, and you guys called for a scout and I'm like, well, oh, this is right up my alley. I'll go down there. So I'm, I'm parked about five houses away and I'm putting out information at the, now at the time I'm gearing up with all my, all my cool stuff. You know, got my my heavy vest on, all you know, tacked out, and got my rifle, got the Kevlar helmet, and all the cool, all the cool stuff. And I'm out there watching the house for 13 minutes, which is very significant for after when we talk about it. And so I get on the radio, and I'm like, "Hey, I got a car in the driveway. That's all I have. There's no foot traffic. There's no vehicle traffic. There's really nothing going on." All right, cool. All right, start rallying the troops. So they start sending marked cars down down the street. And mind you, I'm parked on the west side of the street. The, the target house is on the east side. Of course, it's now facing west. And I'm looking to my north, northeast, if that makes sense. So I see the marked cars coming down the street. A um, couple guys block the streets to the north, more to the streets to the south, blah, blah, blah. So they're disembarking probably more, you know, 10 or 12 houses away from where I'm at, like five or so houses from the target location. So Dave Glasser turned out, he was riding with his partner, Ryan Lee, makes the impromptu decision that, hey, we what we have is basically uh, a dad that called saying the son was suicidal, wants to have a shootout with the cops. Oh, well, that's kind of a problem. We know he's on dope. Uh, we know he's got access to at least one gun inside the house and this vehicle. So the thought process at the time was, for Dave at least, was, well, we don't want to have a rolling gunfight if this guy is able to access his car. And we've got cops all over the place. We don't want this guy driving down the street and shooting at us. So he makes a decision to go ahead and block in the van. Okay. I thought it was a pretty sound tactic. Um, I've had several guys I've asked. I'm like, dude, what do you guys think? Was that a sound tactic or should he have gone another way? And I've only had one other guy. There's a SWAT guy from Ohio say, well, he should have gone and come in from the other direction. I said, well, that's, I mean, that's all fine and great, but now he's completely exposed to the front door and the front window of the house. So he was less exposed on the driver's side, if you will. Uh, neither here nor there now. Um, Dave pulls up in the driveway, basically blocking the guy's van in. Um, and I start to disembark from my undercover and I'm walking out in the street and I get out to the middle of no man's land and gunfire erupts. And I'm like, holy, shit, where is this guy at? And turned out he's sitting inside the driver's seat of that van. And remember that 13 minutes I'm out there watching that van by myself. This is what I've been doing for 14 years. 
18 years on the department and I never saw the guy inside the car because he basically laying in wait. He's hiding. He knows we're coming for him. There's no question in his mind. Straight up ambush. I mean, by definition. So basically what he does is as soon as Dave starts to get out of his car, um, the guy opens his door, reaches back and fires three rounds. First round goes through Dave's door, catches him in the knee. Second round goes past everything, catches another Tahoe parked on the street. And then the third round catches Dave's A-pillar on his door. And um, they think the round split in two and caught Dave in the head, um, just around the hairline. And it's like, holy So before I even knew what was going on, Dave was already down on the ground dead. And gunfire erupts from all the other guys that are on that side of the car. And it wasn't contagious fire by any means, but I'm up on my side facing north, northeast. And my area of responsibility was basically the south side of the house, window, front door. And I can clearly see there's nobody over there. And in that two-second process of deduction, I realized the guy must be inside the, the driver's seat of this car. So I come up and um, empty a first volley of rounds. I estimate between seven and ten rounds into the middle window of his car, thinking, well, that should solve the problem. I got to take a set a sidestep to this whole thing. Now, I remember the three other shootings I got involved with, a target turns, raise and fire two rounds, stand by, wait for the pizzas, right? No big deal. Well, what I failed to realize was that that doesn't always work because unfortunately I had, I had trained my brain subconsciously of what does a shooting look like? I had never really processed through what a gunfight looks like. So I get that done with that first volley of rounds. Now keeping in mind, I'm also an instructor which we tell people all the time, when you get done shooting, stay on target, stay on target, stay on target. I teach this all the time. What do you think I did? As soon as I get done shooting, I come off target to go take a look at what I've now just accomplished. And then what do you think happens? The guy starts shooting back at me. Holy So my brain is thinking, shooting, 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 we're good to go. We'll put 10 rounds of rifle down there, down range, it'll solve the problem. And then it didn't work. So there's failure number one in that gunfight. So... I come off target and I move off the X and I come back up for that second volley of rounds. And um, of course my, my fingers are working faster than my brain. So I'm doing the typical thing where I'm, I'm climbing as I'm coming up on target. So I put that first six rounds into his door and then I start making contact with him through the window. Um, I put another 15 or so rounds into him. So for a total of 22 rounds before he's finally done. And that the gunfight portion, that was pretty much where it ended after that. After that, it was pretty much securing the scene, getting Dave extricated out and get him loaded up, um, which is a whole nother conversation too about training. So that's where we are with that one. So well, yeah, and sadly, you know, sometimes it, it it's it takes tragedy to, you know, realize that I can always be better. Um I don't have it all figured out or, you know, as an agency, you can do things better as a profession. We can train and do things better. Um, but you know, some, some, something, you just can't prepare for every eventuality. And sometimes it's important to do AARs and it's important, I think, to, to really go through a, a sound process of, of evaluation, like, okay, what could we have done differently? But, you know, like when you mentioned, um, uh, a SWAT officer from a, from another state might provide some recommendations or suggestions. Hey, did you think about this? Um, and it's always, it's always easy to, 
to armchair quarterback, right? And um, it's easy to second guess or, and, and I'm sure, I'm sure they were doing it in a constructive way. Like, oh, absolutely. Totally some, sometimes, sometimes people, but you know, sometimes people are just critical about it, right? Particularly, I think uh, citizens uh, get a little particular about the number of rounds fired. Like, well, why that that's excessive. Like, how, why did you shoot 22 times? That's way too much. And, you know, the flippant answer might be because, well, 21 wasn't enough and 23 might it was going to be too much. Um, but but there's a lot of truth to that answer. And 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 you made it you made the comment, right? Sometimes the the finger is moving faster than the brain. Um, it's really just the brain catching, you know, the brain is sending the signals and, and the feedback loop is coming back um, and it takes time you know, yeah. to process and slow and reevaluate. So, um, yeah, it's I mean, uh, for Science Institute has done amazing research in this area where they talk about why, why sometimes, you know, police officers shoot people in the back. Um, why, you know, why, why things like that happen? Because the decision to stop um, or the or the decision to start is in one brain and one person. Another again, I come back to the other person has a say in what's happening, right? If I if I in the the example I used to use for people all the time and try to understand, like in particular case if an officer shoots somebody in the back, well, if I point a gun at you and and your reaction is now you're going to start pointing your gun back. Most likely you're going to either be moving most like hopefully moving and pointing the gun back as you're moving to cover or getting, getting off the X. But when that, as that decision is being made, it's action reaction. So a person can pull a gun point, pull the trigger and turn and run before uh, an officer has an opportunity to process what's happening and pull the trigger and fire and return. And thus, by the time they actually pull the trigger, the person's already turned and and so a hit can be in the back so it's the same thing as um shooting through shooting through a door um after especially after you just watch you know a partner get shot from around that's coming from in from inside of a, a concealed location that's that's not an easy thing to process in a moment the other uh, really important distinction there that you were talking about is is recognize the difference between a shooting being in a shooting and being in a gunfight um and a lot of I, I i that's so it's such a critical distinction because uh, you, you know some of the typical ways that we train and this is why it's so important to do scenario based training where you have different outcomes different reactions uh dave grossman's done tons of work and i know um you've if i remember correctly you've had the opportunity to meet with me dave and um talk about some of these things but you know most of us in law enforcement have have, have trained with him and it's crazy the power of the brain and what the brain can project based in what people might think they're supposed to do when they're involved in shootings uh, but that doesn't always necessarily match with reality yeah you couldn't be more true and i mean it you would think that it's pretty common sense and it's it should be and is as an instructor it would seem pretty pretty clear but until you're in it then you're like whoa you know and if you've if you've had success if you want to call it that you know hopefully not being inappropriate of of surviving the other three and all of a sudden it doesn't work and then you're like wait a second hang on you know this this isn't how i how i pictured this whole thing going on you know so 
but I say it in such a way, you know, when I do my presentations about, you know, you know, combat accuracy versus target acquisition. And I show myself on the target range and then I show what it looked like on the crime scene. And then I show a picture of my rifle. Now, this is the biggest gun I'm allowed to carry on the street. And of, you know, in that four and a half second gunfight, basically in the next couple of minutes, I had three failures, you know, and one was coming off target and one was one of the rounds not going through the door. And one was me not retaining my magazine. It's like, Holy shit. You know I mean? Yeah. As, as much as I thought I was a rock star training and doing all this great stuff, I still had, you know, I mean, I was, I was performing, I'd say about 85%, which is fantastic, but even still, I'm already 15% behind the curve in addition to three mistakes. It's like, Holy shit. You know? So it, the sense of dynamics is something that, you know, all the training that you go through um, will still, I mean, it'll definitely make you better, make you survive. And, I, and I'm a huge, absolute, complete proponent of training. I think that's, that's the number one way to keep yourself as safe as possible. But you're not going to be able to train for everything. You're just not. So, Well, you know, there was an old statistic, and you probably know this. Maybe maybe you can correct me, but I think it was, and this, this was from years ago when I was actually, when I was a firearms instructor, um, that it, when a police officer was involved in a shooting, you, you were looking at anywhere from like 17 to 18% in the hit rates. So, so that, you know, basically for every 10 rounds, police officers shoot, they hit twice. Um, you know, now that's an average, right? So um, take that with a grain of salt. But I, I think the greater point there is the illustration that um, training is, you know, it's not something that is an option, right? It has to be, it has to be something that's done frequently and it has to be done in a way that's actually going to prepare, prepare people for the stress of the moment. And, um, I mean, you're, you're hundred percent right. And I think a lot of, unfortunately, myself included, when I was still learning about how to be an instructor, so many guys fail because it's like, I mean, any, any clown could shoot a piece of paper, you know, doing the, doing the basic walls. What is that really doing for you? Except for statistics and numbers that we can, we can put back on the city council going, yeah, well, all of our people are all, all qualified up. But that doesn't teach you a damn thing except for like the super basic stuff. So when I teach now, it's like you're you're in it for good. You're in it for life, man. You got to you got to train to survive, you know, and that it really that's not the hard part. It really isn't because I've got all kinds of great scenarios and I'm sure being on SWAT team, you've got a, all, a ton of great stuff there, too. But it's um, the, that's the part. That's the problem. So, right. Yeah. Uh, what is it? Speed is nice, but accuracy is final, you know, so there's all kinds of sayings um, that, you know, the fire that we have as firearms instructors, but, you know, this, you know, for people that are listening or maybe from agencies that train, um, you know, the, the reality is that most people I think are shocked to hear this, but a requirement like a mandate or a requirement generally at the state level is going to require that an officer qualify once a year on their firearm meaning that they go at, and they have a, a basic course that they shoot that's static and they and they score a certain number and now they're qualified. And they may not shoot that firearm again for another year. Right. Um, but we know that that these skills are perishable. Um, the psychomotor skills are perishable and they have to be reinforced constantly. You have to train constantly. Um, so... 
sometimes sometimes I'm not surprised when I see poor outcomes. Um, and and generally when you see poor outcomes, um, not not all not all the time, but generally you, you could probably immediately trace it back to you know how how was how was an officer prepared how were they trained um yeah yeah. and that's where i I feel bad because a lot of guys you know they go to detectives or whatever else and like oh you know i don't really need that kind of stuff anymore well that's not necessarily true um but think about when you're driving home you know i mean you see one of your buddies on the side of the road getting thumped i watched a chp guy getting you know beat up the other day up here in uh, la and several citizens stop to help. But what if you're that guy? And all of a sudden it does turn into a critical incident where you need to pull that trigger. And you have made the decision to not maintain that training. And one of your guys gets killed because you didn't you didn't train properly. You know, it's like, yeah, that's that's worst case, of course. But yeah. So let's bring this all the way back to the beginning. So now um you've been involved in multiple critical incidents the the pressure and the experience and and the outcomes of these things are are building over time um what you know and you know of course that you know this is you know, really that that shooting is is you're experiencing somebody shooting back you're experiencing um you know the the unfortunate you know loss of a partner um so how how you know what was the impact on you uh personally and professionally from that what I figured out was <clears throat> the day Dave was killed was when I when I checked out of law enforcement. When I retired two years later was when I figured it out. That's how screwed up I was um, emotionally. And it wasn't just Dave. There was several other major incidents that happened. Before. It wasn't involved in any shootings and stuff like that, but just other stuff that happened. And so 2018 or 2016, rather, started with these things, all these three other major things happening and then Dave. So Dave was the one that pushed me over the edge. But it was also 18 years of not properly taking care of myself. And when I, you know, from the very beginning of the show, when I when I was pressing that trigger, I knew that it was all that other stuff that I had gone through before. If I got to go through this again, you know, I, I may not survive it. You know, that's why I, I made the decision to go ahead and retire. Um, do I have a problem pulling the trigger? No. Am I trigger happy? No, not in the least. However, do I have the ability to, you know, to take a life if necessary? Yeah, of course. You know, um, that's kind of expected in our community. Unfortunately, uh, that's just part of the nature. But at the same time, it it does take a toll on you over time, and that's exactly what happened to me. And I made a I made a tremendous amount of mistakes after that. After Dave was killed, um, just had a, a series of bad triggers. I had a series of good triggers too, which. Um, I'll take the opportunity now. If you invite me back for a second round, we can talk about that in, in greater detail. Um, well, let's 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 give a little highlight and like a little teaser for talking about this more in depth because that's ultimately what I want really people to walk away from is like you know we can uh, you know we can talk about you know critical incidents and that's generally the things you know it's that's kind of the stuff that captures people's attention. But it's you know but when you start getting down into the emotional stuff you know, and digging in there and kind of twisting around, that's when people, that's when people get uncomfortable. And that's the part generally when people also tune out, they don't, uh, I, that's not going to be me. Um, I, I don't, I don't have to worry about that part. You know, I've, you know, in would they play the hero role in their own mind about like, this is what, this is the way that I'm going to handle it. But then 
you know, and then it's not a problem until it's a problem, right? Yeah. And I was that guy. I was a poster child for, for all that stuff. I'm like, oh, I'm good. Pounding my chest, walking around. Yeah. No, don't worry about me. I'm fine. Um, yeah, dude, you're not fine. You know, you, you can't see stuff you've seen and expect to be okay. Um, so some of my triggers, uh, my very first one, and here's, here's a mistake I made with, with triggers. I got sent home for seven weeks, um, which is a, mostly because we, I couldn't get to see the psychiatrist in a timely manner because we had so many officer ball shootings at the time. It took me seven weeks to finally get in to see the city psychiatrist. So that seven weeks I'm sitting at home and I'm creating triggers because I'm so smart. Right. And I've been through this before. I already knew what was going to happen. I'm like, Oh yeah, it'll be this and this and this huge mistake as it turns out, because when it actually did happen, it was nothing like I could ever imagined. You know, I mean, who knew, right? So my very first good trigger was working off duty, truck speeds off, whatever else. And he starts um, firing rounds into the air. And the first thing I do is I run to the street to go get a description of the vehicle. And it dawned on me that I can still run, run to the sound of the gunfire. Great trigger. It was good. It was really good for me. And I learned from that experience. Um, fast forward, we had another one where all the guys from Dave's scene were on this one particular call weeks and weeks later. I had a huge major anxiety attack and I'm like, holy, I didn't, I wasn't sure how to handle it. I ran back to the car. My partner at the time was super squared away. Um, and what I realized would end up being a good trigger was yes, everybody from Dave scene was there on this other next call again, weeks later, but we all left safely. Good trigger. Fast forward. Now buddy of mine gets in an officer while shooting and I heard that tone come out and that set me off. That just like, you know, I went I went straight into panic mode, another anxiety attack, but I end up finding the suspect vehicle, of course, because I'm the magnet, right? So <laughs> I find the suspect vehicle. Now it's an undercover pursuit, basically. I'm following the guy in an undercover car. I pretty much made every mistake you can make all the way leading up to um, driving into not oncoming traffic, but basically broke a, you know, busted a red light following a patrol car and get tagged in the rear of my truck. So now I got an at-fault accident. You know, that whole thing was just one big bad trigger, which led to my my at the time sergeant give me some grief, which led me down another freaking rabbit hole of triggers, which was all bad stuff. The good part about having bad triggers, though, is I learned that, yes, they're bad, but this is what I can take away from it. I didn't just I didn't just kind of, you know, cover my head and go, oh, you know, what was me? No, bullshit. I'm going to I'm going to take it on board and figure out how in the hell do I fix this? So if I get triggered again, I know how to handle it, you know? So um, in a nutshell, that's, that's basically my trigger story. So what, so, I mean, with all this, with all this knowledge and experience that you've been through, um, if you had to sum it up for, if you're talking to a, 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 an officer that's starting their career today, what are some of the things that you would do going backwards to try to, um, but really, just what would you do differently, knowing what you know now? Well, I uh, I say it in a joking way to begin with, and then I get a little more serious. I joke about when you start realizing that you're getting too involved with your career, i.e. when you're in a McDonald's drive through and she asks you if that completes your order and you answer with yes, 10-4, you got you to gotta take a step back. <laughs> you just do. And <laughs> I still guys are laughing, but I'll never do that. Well, guess what? Happens all the time. I was that guy, too. Um so that's that's kind of how I break into it. But then I start talking about, you know, all the failures that I had because I didn't we didn't talk about this, but 
we buried 16 guys in my 20 years, you know, guys who showed up to work and never went home. That's another huge proponent of, of loss that you've got to process through and continue to push forward. But if you don't take care of yourself, you're going to end up like I did. And you're going to be waking up at two in the morning, having anxiety attacks, sitting at a stoplight, bursting out into tears for no reason whatsoever. And just because you didn't take care of yourself. And does it really take a Herculean effort to do that? No, it does not. Take a step back from time to time, share the stuff with your family, because if you don't share it with your family, is it going to be an assumption that, well, you're either, you know, you're not going to share it with me. You're probably sharing it with somebody else, which leads to accusations and all kinds of other bad stuff, which is how I end up divorced myself. Um, because that was, that's how I was, that's how I was trained and taught. Right. But if you, if you open up and you don't have a problem and you shouldn't have a problem explaining your stories and telling people, Hey, you know what? Coming to that realization that, you know what? I'm just, I'm just not feeling real. You don't have to say I'm not okay. I don't care what you do. Just recognize that you need to take care of yourself. And I keep saying it over and over again, because if you don't, when the, when the big one hits, like with Dave, I was already way too far behind the curve and that just pushed me over the edge. And I'll, I'll go back and talk about it again, where it took me two years to figure out the day day was killed when I checked out, you know, and I don't want that for anybody else. I want people to <clears throat> thrive and have a healthy career and a healthy marriage and a healthy life and a healthy retirement. Those are all the things that'll make you do all those things by just taking care of yourself, whatever that is. Yeah. And there's more than one way to do that. And that's kind of, the, uh, the the idea is prehab instead of rehab, like prehabilitation, and and you know this is this can be something that we we can take on as individuals. Uh, I think we're getting better at this in law enforcement in talking about this up front. Uh, we're certainly a lot better about debriefing critical incidents, making sure that we have teams in place inside of our organizations uh, to work through and process and help people process. Um, when they're involved in in deadly force encounters, um, but you know it, it, there there's a lot of other things, a lot of little things that go into it in terms of, you know, it's it's not just the the emotional aspect of it, but there's also the physical side of things that you need to take care of. You need to make sure you're you know when, when you're having anxiety attacks and and you're feeling that pressure, you know, it makes sleep difficult when you don't sleep well. Everything else starts to get out of, you know, becomes a little bit more difficult. Sleep is one of the things that, you know, I probably worry the most about with police officers. If 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 you were to ask my advice about the number one thing that any police officer can do to improve their wellness overall is to make sure that they're getting good sleep. Uh, that means minimum of six hours of, of uninterrupted sleep as often as you can get. Uh, and on your days off, you know, make sure you're getting eight to nine hours of sleep. Um, I put sleep above exercise. I put it above nutrition. I put it above everything else because if you're not sleeping well, everything else, everything else is going to be more difficult, but then you do have to take those things in. Um, nutrition helps with sleep, not self-medicating with alcohol. You know, alcohol is, is, you know, may help you fall asleep, but you're not sleeping well when you're on alcohol. It's, it's actually going to, it's going to make your sleep worse. You're never getting into deep sleep. You're not recovering. And um, that can be a big problem. I agree. Yeah. Dave Grossman is a big, big proponent on that too. He's got a whole thing. Where he talks about, you know, what leads to 
a lot of a lot of problems with sleep deprivation in in general. You know, it's it's unbelievable some of the statistics he talks about. Um, but another big thing like you talk about is nutrition. I mean, that's huge having a good diet because I'm I'm that guy too. You know, I wake up, you know, five in the morning, get to the station by six, or out on the street by six thirty. First thing we do is hit QT, and I got my freaking monster in my cherry pie. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, it's completely stupid, and you know that, but that's, you know, and these are excuses, reasons, you know, a habit, whatever it is, um, which is okay from time to time, it is. But you can't be excessive with these kinds of things. I mean, it's it's okay from every once in a while, this kind of stuff. But if you maintain that good, healthy diet, which helps you sleep, which helps you perform better. All this kind of stuff makes a huge difference. It really does. It makes, it makes all the difference. So. Yeah. We're looking about, you know, we're, what we're really talking about here is synergy, right? It's like all things working for each other, not against each other. And that's, um, um, it's easier said than done. And, you know, again, it's, that's, that's another concern that I have when we're t- you know, agencies are understaffed right now, really high demands and expectations. It puts a lot of pressure on, on on not just the street cops but you know uh, on administrators as well and it's um you know that doesn't that doesn't lead to um the type of outcomes that we want so got to you got to take time for yourself and it's you know we've we've done a couple of shows on this you know already um back to uh like the episode with Michael Easter on lead yourself first um and then got some got some cool episodes coming up i don't want to i don't want to give them away just yet but you know talking about some of the science behind this um yeah it's it's critically important but i think i think we better uh i think we better wrap it up so i do want to close again by saying um get a copy of of chris's book and uh where where can people get it how can they get a hold of you um, you're welcome to throw my email out there if you want to. Uh, Chris Hoyer 46 at Gmail. Um, Christopher Hoyer 46 or Chris Hoyer? No, just, uh, just Chris Hoyer. C-H-R-I-S-H-O-Y-E-R. Common spelling. So email is is one way to find a book. Um, and let me just throw this out there. I, I welcome anybody who wants to reach out to me at any time. Please do. Um, or the book's also on Amazon, Kindle, um, Audible as well. Um I can't, I mean, I'd be more than happy if somebody is really interested, I can send a hard copy signed and which is really weird for me too, but yeah, I can do that. So (laughs) So that's, that's great. Yeah. A lot of folks want to have it in their hand. That's, that's me. I'm an old school, old school guy. And that's what I want. So, but. Well, so I really appreciate you taking your time to share your story. Um, And, you know, I just want to let you know, that how much I appreciate your sacrifice and certainly the, the sacrifice for, uh, for all those that didn't make it home, uh, that were out serving your community. And, and, you know, it's, you know, sadly that's, that's a reality across, across America. It's, you, you just don't know. And, um, it takes a lot of courage to, to suit up and go out there and do it. It's easy to be a critic uh, of law enforcement. And I, I strongly encourage people that, uh, there's no better way to understand policing better than to go do it. Um, and there's no no better opportunity to make a difference in your community than than working in uh, public service. It's not for everybody, but um, yeah. Thank you very much for your service. Really appreciate it. I appreciate you, man. Thank you very much.
All right. Any final words before we, we shut her down? Because if we start talking again, we might go for another hour and a half. All right. Yeah. Well, in the uh, in the words of Dave Glasser, his his thing that he told everybody was, I love you. So there you go. So, All right. Love you too, brother. All right. We'll end it at that. And thank you very much for spending some of your valuable time with us until, until the next episode of the Captimizer podcast. I'm 1042. The Captimizer podcast is powered by Performance Protocol. Performance Protocol brings professional executive coaching to police officers and administrators at all levels of the organization. Performance Protocol has the blueprint that will operationalize organizational optimization. It is purpose-built for today's public safety employees to help them accomplish goals and live better. What is it? One-on-one video-based coaching with officers and leaders who have been in your shoes and know firsthand what it means to live and work in public safety. The program will connect you with certified coaches who combine their years of success in the world of law enforcement with world-class training from the cobble of performance protocol coaches. Get the support, resources, motivation you need to live the life you want. Performance protocol coaches are relatable, knowledgeable, and confidential. Most importantly, they get results. Why should the keys to unlocking our peak performance be reserved for just the boardroom or the playing field? Unleash your full potential today and get started with Performance Protocol. Remember, performance is the goal. Protocol is the path. Log into www.performance-protocol and learn more about how to bring this program to your agency and community.